Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. No, um, I did not blast off into space with Jeff Bezos, uh, but it is nice to know that space is now safe for billionaires. Look, I, I am, I'm not going to give you one of those hipster uh, takes on all of this because I do think the technology is cool. I think the research is going to have all sorts of spinoffs. It, it is remarkable watching all of the 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 news coverage. I don't know what it is about billionaires going into space that makes the media just absolutely giddy. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative about it because it, it is exciting, but it does seem like just sort of a weird moment in our history. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the uh, the January 6th investigation continues. We have the appointees uh, from uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican appointees to the committee, which are pretty much exactly what you'd uh, expect. We will talk about uh, that. In fact, we're going to be joined by uh, Ryan Riley, who is the senior justice reporter for the Huffington Post, who's been covering all of this, including the sedition hunters and uh, the way the litigation is playing out. So um, might as well just say, hey, uh, good morning, Ryan. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So before we get into all of this, could you just talk about the weird thing that's going on at Fox News right now? Now, I, I don't know whether all of this is connected or whether it's not where it comes down, but but it's certainly interesting. Uh, Fox News has been under tremendous pressure and criticism, which they've so far completely blown off and ignored, uh, to do something about all of the vaccination disinformation coming out from their hosts like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson. And uh, the you know, the growing chorus of people saying, you know, that people are dying as a result of this misinformation. And um, three things happened yesterday. We find out that the Fox News has very quietly implemented its own vaccine passport system for its own employees, which is kind of interesting, considering that many of its uh, primetime hosts are regarding those as fascists. That's number one. Number two, you you had uh, some of the morning hosts, uh, Steve Ducey, who went off uh, telling people to get their vaccinations. And then rather remarkably, uh, you had this moment from Sean Hannity last night. Just like we've been saying, please take COVID seriously. I can't say it enough. Enough people have died. We don't need any more deaths. Research like crazy. Talk to your doctor, your doctors, medical professionals you trust based on your unique medical history, your current medical condition, and you and your doctor make a very important decision for your own safety. Take it seriously. You also have a right to medical privacy. Doctor-patient confidentiality is also important. And it absolutely makes sense for many Americans to get vaccinated. I believe in science. I believe in the science of vaccination. Okay, so Ryan, I, I don't have any first-hand information on that. Maybe I'm too cynical here, but that felt like he was reading something someone gave him. <laughs> Do you know what I'm it saying? It does. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because you could have turned this entire thing around and made it sort of a celebration of how well Trump did. Right. And like take yeah. your Trump vaccine or like gone along those lines or something of that nature. But, you know, unfortunately, what's happened is that, you know, Dr. Fauci has sort of been demonized and he's become this sort of political target on the right. Um, and I just think that, you know, it, it is remarkable because you obviously see that the people, you know, in the in the in the suites up there at Fox News are are taking this very seriously. And, you know, the Trump family obviously has their vaccines. But, you know, they have to also appeal to this constituency that's very suspicious of uh, of this vaccine and how we're going to get back to normal. Yeah, but it, the, the messages are certainly mixed. So right before the clip I just played, Hannity was ripping this university for mandating the vaccines. And then immediately afterwards, he interviews this young woman who says that she lost feelings in her legs um, after taking some different kind of vaccine. So he's still kind of bookending it. And then, of course, Tucker Carlson comes on 
And he tells the viewers they should ignore people giving you medical advice on television. So who the hell knows what's actually going on on Fox News? I, it's I, really bizarre. I mean, yeah, it's I just can't imagine like the messages that you, if you're a normal Fox Newser, you know, has been has been absorbing. It must be really confusing to sort of, you know, hear these two different sides of the coin there, um, you know, and but there have been people I, I saw there. I saw someone was writing about someone on on Twitter who said, you know, oh, my husband is you know a huge Fox News guy and won't believe me about the vaccine. But when, you know, Steve Ducey got up there and said, yeah, take your vaccine, he took that more seriously. So well, I guess if it has a positive impact, it just seems a little bit late. It seems like, you know, now is, 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 a, is a few months too late and when we really needed this this more serious push. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, it's good. It, it may literally save lives, but it does feel a little bit late and you kind of wonder whether it's going to be whether it's going to be consistent or whether it's going to be just one of those little spasms that they, you know, right before they go back to the, the norm. Okay, so let's talk about uh, January 6th and everything that's going on here. Uh, there are a lot of developments, including Kevin McCarthy has named five Republicans to the select committee to investigate January 6th, including uh, Jim Jordan. Well, out of the five, three of the five are believers in the big lie. So, I mean, I think you got a signal here exactly how seriously Kevin McCarthy is taking that investigation. Will it have any effect, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is definitely going to be they're definitely going to be bulldogs there who are sort of fighting this every step of the way. And the fact that you have three people on there who actually, even after that attack, voted you know, against democracy, essentially, um, is really, I think, remarkable and is not a great sign for any hopes of bipartisanship, I think, on this uh, commission going forward. It'll, I mean, it sort of ex- it depends upon the the questions they explore here. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of efforts, obviously, um, and we even saw this in the sentencing yesterday to sort of, you know, what about ism this? Like, you know, okay, what about, mm-hmm. you know, what about Portland? What about, you know, any all these riots that we saw all over the summer of 2020? Um, I think that that's going to be a constant theme here in saying, oh, you're throwing the book at um, these these sort of Trump insurrectionists. And, you know, I I I'm I think I'm very attuned to things can go either way. Right. So if there's overreach against one political party that can just, you know, in a few years uh, go the other way and protesters from the other side of the political spectrum can be really hit really well. But it seems like, you know, either people weren't paying attention or people weren't necessarily caring about some of, I think, the overreach we saw during the Trump administration against uh, sort of more left-wing protesters in, in a lot of cases. And it's sort of been memory hold now. And, it, you know, because there is so much chaos, I think, in the Justice Department during the Trump administration in general during his four years in office, that this wasn't covered as well. But one thing I covered really closely was uh, the J-20 protests, which were the protesters hmm. who the streets on Trump's inauguration. Um, and there was a, re- they, the, <laughs> the feds really took a remarkable approach to that. Now this, now in DC, because we don't have a local elected prosecutor, the feds, the justice department prosecute both local and federal crimes. So a lot of crimes are, you know, through the U S district uh, or the U S uh, district, um, court. Some of the crimes are through DC superior court and they, what happened during the J 20 protest in the Trump inauguration is a lot of people were kettled on the street, um, and arrested and had these severe felony charges against every one of them. And the government's argument was that everyone was part of this conspiracy so that, you mm-hmm. know, when we saw those images of, uh, a burning limousine, or smash storefronts that anyone who was there at that time was also responsible for what happened. Hmm. Um, 
And the government failed at that pretty miserably um, because they the first six people they put up to trial, they tracked them all the way through the protest and they admitted that they found zero evidence of them actually smashing any windows or burning or looting anything. And they were, I mean, these were felonies that could have sent them away theoretically at maximum sentence for decades, right? Um, and that, and I mean, it was, it was sitting in court watching that and then now hearing oh, there's this big overreach against the Trump, uh, the Trump supporters on January 6th. It's just, it's, it's, it's this just break for me. It's like, no, I've sat, I sat through this. I sat through some of these really extreme charges, you know, popping someone for a misdemeanor offense. That's the equivalent of what you would get if you held up a cardboard sign in during an ongoing committee hearing, you know, for, Hmm. for actions taken on January 6th, isn't, isn't this extreme overreach? Yes. It's getting more attention. I would say certainly for the, from the, from the media, all these cases are being covered individually. So that's sort of a separate component, but like, that's not an extreme overreach here. And I don't, I I've been very attuned to, you know, overreaches from the government here. And I haven't really seen these broad overreaches yet. Maybe there are a couple of cases where they could have, you know, let someone out or the government argued for incarcerating someone before, trial but i had like there other than a couple of mistakes that the fbi has made there hasn't been this overreach i think okay. that um, people are describing so let's talk about i know you've been covering how the fbi has been uh investigating this uh, the, the sedition hunters uh, the new york times is out with a story uh how trump's focus on antifa distracted attention from the far right threat that uh, reporting how federal law enforcement shifted resources last year in response to Trump's insistence that radical left endangered the country. Meanwhile, right wing extremism was building ominously. This is something that you've covered. And it, it, it is an interesting story because, of course, when the president of the United States says this should be a law enforcement priority, it's not this. It's not the right wing. It is Antifa. This had a real effect in the real world. So talk to me about what your reporting has uh, has found out about that. Yeah, so let me take you back. Like, sort of, this is this is right after George Floyd's death, and we're in Jackson, Tennessee. Um, there's, you know, a couple of peaceful protests, but nothing really big going on. Um, and what happens one day is this guy Justin Kaufman uh, goes on Facebook, and you know, he's obviously upset about uh, George Floyd's death. Uh, he's a supporter of Black Lives Matter. He and he, for his band, which is called the the Gunpowder Plot, um, you know, sort of the historical references. I'm sure a lot of your um, your listeners will pick up on. But he posted this. He posted these clearly staged images of him posing with a fake Molotov cocktail behind his back. So there's three separate photos. You know, you see the aperture in them. You see the artistic design. It's very clearly staged photos, and they were obviously photos for a for a photo shoot. Um, and afterwards, you know, some I, this become everyone is sort of on edge. Police are on edge, and this becomes a big thing in the Jackson Police Department. Um, Justin hears about it. He actually proactively reaches out to the uh, to the Jackson Police Department and says, "Hey, listen, these aren't real." <laughs> Justin, this, this is Justin Kaufman. Correct. Right? The, yes, the, he reaches the, out the, the punk rocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he reaches out and says proactively, like reaches out to them and says, "Hey, just you know, wanted to make sure we're all straight here." Gives that information to the police department. Um, nevertheless, days later, um, his his home is raided um, because they were saying that it was a hoax device under Tennessee law, even though there is a specific exception in that law for dramatic performances. Um, and they were, and they ended up finding what they found in his home was a gun that he was legally allowed to own, but they also found a small baggie of marijuana. And there's this Uh federal statute, uh, that is rarely used that is more commonly used against users of other drugs, but occasionally has been deployed uh, against users of, of marijuana that they used in this case um, and actually came up with a federal charge against them for. But that wasn't until months later. So this raid happens in June. So that's June, July, 
August, September, October, right when, you know, a few weeks before the election, right as Bill Barr is on this really big, you know, kick and about Antifa and so is uh, Donald Trump and that's sort of their their focus. That's when um, they decided to pop this case out. And then so this you know, was kind so of that, that, this was kind of their poster child, right? I mean, this this punk rocker, this was like, OK, we got somebody. We're on the case. We're doing something about this. Yeah. And they like really, and I mean, first, you know, there's nothing going on in Jackson, I think is a really important component of this. So it was, it was sort of almost like they were like desperate to go up to the big leagues. I think some of the local cops there, right. It was like, oh yeah, we want to be a part of this. Right. Obviously they didn't like his political views. Um, and that just sort of comes across and they really hid the ball here because in the, in the search warrant affidavit, in the press release materials on this, in the charging paperwork, there's mention of this Facebook page for the gunpowder plot, but there's no, there's no acknowledgement at all that it's a band, right? Like they just leave that completely out and that this was a photo shoot. So basically now down the line, what this judge is saying is that, you know, they really hit the ball here. And like, clearly this was a photo shoot. Clearly this was a band and you left all that information out. You hid that and that this search warrant was bogus and shouldn't have been executed in the first place because the explanation that Justin Kaufman gave to police before his home was raided was very credible that he, this was, these were posed images for a band, which you could have surmised simply from reading, from looking at those images on Facebook. It was just very clear that these were posed images. And, the, and the judges agreed. Plot. I mean, the, this is a Bush era yeah. judge, and he just he has just totally slammed this. So you've been you've yeah. been also covering the various cases that have been moving through the, the courts, and the one that has you know is is getting the most attention, obviously uh, today, is the case of uh, Paul Hodgkins, uh, one of the uh, Trump fanatics who w- was the first felony capital riot case um, that we we've seen, and he he got just eight months. Or tell me whether or not it's just eight months. Um, your take on that, because there were a lot of commentators who were surprised that it was that small a, a, a sentence for a felony and whether that sends a message to other protesters. Yeah. You know, I don't think we should ever think of eight months as not being a significant amount yeah. of time. Any time in prison is significant. Um, but it was certainly much lower than what the federal government had requested in this case, which was 18 months. And it was even lower than the sentencing guideline range um, in, in his case, which would have also been a few months longer. But I think that the judge was very clear that this case was sort of set apart from other other cases. You know, the judge was very interested in how many people actually entered into that Senate chamber and how many people were we talking about here. Um, and I think what what this defendant got credit for was the fact that he was one of the sort of the first over the gate and was very ready to sort of plead guilty to a felony in this case and, and you know, move past this, uh, take accountability for his actions. Um, and of course, the fact that he didn't actually commit any violence. So he had some, you know, he came there with goggles. He, he the, the prosecutors talk about all of these decision points where he went the wrong way, you know, when he left the, the Trump rally early and started marching to the Capitol, when he passed those barricades, when he went into the Capitol, and then when he went into the Senate, which the entrance into the Senate chamber is what escalated this from a misdemeanor to a felony. Um, And I think that that's what the context of this really was, is that the judge was looking at this and saying, you know, he was he was looking at individualized justice for this defendant, which I think is what you know, it's not so I think that a better way to think of this is this is what you want for every defendant across America is individualized justice. Um, So I think, you know, on the left, certainly we've seen a lot of I think, uh, outrage about the length of, of the sentence here, but this isn't one of, it is a felony case, but is not one of the more 
uh, severe felony cases. Now, I would be shocked if we saw some of the more violent cases where we have these, you know, officers being dragged down this uh, down the stairs and tased. If we saw that, I which I just don't think is even remotely plausible that we'll see that sort of um, offering in that case. Well, I think because well, of this was essentially just a, per, a more of a he entered into the he was mm-hmm. part of this, but he was not a really hardcore participant in it. So what is the status of the conspiracy cases? I mean, we do know that some of the Oath Keepers are cooperating with the government. What what should we be watching there? Yeah, I mean, I think there are going to be more conspiracy cases to come, frankly. There's a lot of these sort of cells in different areas, as you would call them, that grouped together and came together and had and had a plan. Of course, the big ones on the table right now that will, I think, probably continue to expand in some cases are the Oath Keepers um, and the Proud Boys. Um, and, you know, I think there's going to be some cooperation there. But there's only so much benefit that can have for a lot of defendants because a lot of in a lot of cases they've got everything they need from the communications they've gotten off their cell phones, even if they are using encrypted apps and they've been able to access those phones. They have sort of a trove of information on that, unless there was deleting messages, which they did in in some cases. But um, there's only going to be so much benefit I think some of all these defendants could take. But a lot of them, you know, their legal strategy is pretty is pretty laid out. It's more of a public relations uh, sort of. Strategy strategy and a money raising strategy because some of these a couple of the defense attorneys that have gotten involved here you know um, have are sort of known for fundraising and because they're sort of right-wing figures and are raising money off of this and are and are making this a political issue and you know claiming that their defendants well, that, are some what, sort of that, political what, prisoners that's what I wanted to ask you about is, is, is how yeah. the the sort of the shift in the politics of this has affected the, the cases you have uh, Donald Trump uh, now describing uh, some of the demonstrators slash rioters as patriots and beautiful people. Uh, clearly, there is an effort to turn them into martyrs, uh, heroic martyrs. Uh, is is that changing their posture? Uh, are they, a, I think you've already answered this, but, but I mean, is it a- across the board uh, making them less willing to negotiate with the government um, more, you know, more, more confident in their in, in their defenses? Yeah, you know, I think on both sides, there's kind of like this, this idea of everything's black and white when a lot of things are in gray. So on, I think on the right, you have this idea of, oh, the all the images that they know about are, the, are in some circles, I think, of the internet are the only ones, things that they've seen are people who are walking in between those, you know, barriers and peacefully, I guess, marching through the Capitol. And that's the footage that they focus on. And then, you know, on the left, it's all that brutal, you know, medieval battle right outside. And the right. truth is, a lot of these cases, I, I do think that there were people who were there who didn't realize what was going on in other parts of the building. And I mean, you know, not a lot of these people were necessarily, you know, really well educated about the operations of uh, of the federal government. You had, for instance, a defendant who thought he was at the, the White House and said three times, I'm at the White House, we're storming the White House when he, you know, had his hand on the Capitol. Um, so there's not, you know, I think, you know, ignorance is, is a, certainly a component of this for sure. Um, but, you know, I don't think that I think that the, as as we see as we move on from here, there's going to be these very political arguments that are that are being made yeah. um, about the accountability. And, you know, I think that that's the fundraising is going to be a major component here. And some people are very successful at saying, listen, I'm being victimized by the Biden uh, administration here. And I'm a political prisoner, even though there's video of them, you know, assaulting an officer and some, uh, something of that nature. That's what they're, that's the case they're making right now is that they are political prisoners. Hey, let's, uh, let's take a quick break here and we'll be back with, with more from Ryan Riley and particularly uh, his work on the sedition hunters. These are the online sleuths who are aiding the FBI's 
capital manhunt. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to the secret podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like the Next Level podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. We're back with Ryan Riley from the Huffington Post. Uh, Ryan, right before the break, I just promoted this, uh, all the work you've done on the sedition hunters. One of the most fascinating parts about this whole investigation is the way that the FBI has used social media on online sites to track down the hundreds of people who stormed the Capitol. So talk to me about who these people are and how it works. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of these people, it's sort of an impromptu pop-up organization that came together that's really loosely affiliated and works sort of in different groups, uh, but is tracking people by hashtag. But it's, it's not law enforcement itself. It, these are what are these are private citizens doing this? average Americans. You know, I've talked to really? a lot of mothers and fathers who are um, sort of doing this around <laughs> their their homeschooling schedules. My One of my favorites is this woman uh, from around Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, who I've been, uh, spoke with for a while. And she was a uh, FBI witness number two on one of these uh, early cases. Um, and um, the name Brent Bozell IV might uh, ring my oh, yes. bell with you. So he's, it, yeah. So he was, he was, he's this, you know, uh, very <laughs> well, uh, he's he's his family has been a major part of Republican politics for for decades for you know last half century or more, um, and he was an individual who was spotted on the floor of the Senate. And the way that they came about wasn't because someone you know in politics or recognized him and saw a photo of him. This came about because of this this local mom who was contacted by someone off of uh, Sedition Hunters and actually then uh, sort of went down a rabbit hole on Facebook and went to he was. Uh, Brent Bozell the fourth was wearing a sweatshirt for his <laughs> child's uh, his children's school, which was pretty specific. It's a small Christian school, and all the, this woman did was went down Facebook and was looking at everyone who had ever liked any image that was posted on the Facebook page for this school, and eventually found Zeker Bozell, and then figured out that Zeker Bozell was. Brent Bozell the fourth and found another image of him, even though he tried to like sort of cover up his Facebook profile a bit, she was able to sleuth it out and has now has this, you know, ongoing relationship with the FBI where she continues to figure uh, out all these connections between different people in Pennsylvania who traveled to the Capitol on January 6th and continues to send them information. And of course, Brent Bozell is now facing a felony charge because she not only found, there was not only video of him actually in the well of the Senate uh, where he had no reason to be, but he actually smashes out a window. And because of that work, um, that of connecting all of these different pieces of information and YouTube videos and, and Instagram videos and Facebook videos and Facebook images, there's just been a tremendous amount of work um, by open source investigators as they like So to who are these people? They're, they're open source, but who are these people? I mean, are these people who have backgrounds in investigation or, or are they just, are they complete amateurs who are pretty good with social media and doing this sort of thing? What? It's a mix. You know, I've, I've used the phrase like Motley Crue to describe okay. them before. And like some people have taken like offense to that, but I mean it in like the most complimentary way. It's a, it's a very, I would say d sort of diverse geographically 
age-wise group of people, and you just have people from all walks of life who are working on this. There are people who are who are really good coders and are organizing websites that allow you to like look at individualized information and say, okay, I'm looking at this time. I want to find this. I want to look at this particular location around the Capitol at this time and view all the videos. And then organizing those hashtags. So anytime that you spot a suspect in a video, and maybe you can escalate their charge from, you know, oh, they were only a misdemeanor offense to a felony because you see an assault on a cop and organizing huh. all that information hashtags. And, you know, the FBI, I mean, is a little bit flat footed here, frankly. See, this is this, this is, is what's amazing. Yeah. This is what's amazing to me because, <laughs> you know, in, in my mind, I'm imagining, you know, all these FBI agents with all the computers and everything and the satellites and the NSA listening into everybody. And yeah. in fact, it's not them. It's these homeschooling moms who are this motley crew that's doing it on their own. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the, yeah. at the beginning of the, I mean, you've got to think this is a really unique inve- investigation for the FBI. This is like yes. nothing they've ever done before, right? But when they wanted to go after a bank robber locally, what they would do is they'd give that bank robber a nickname, show some images of him, and put out a PDF with his photos on it. So essentially, you know, after January 6th, you saw the FBI have the same reaction that they've had in these previous cases. They treated it sort of as a, you know, a, a local robber and posted these PDF images, which in the internet age in the 21st century just weren't extremely helpful. So now the FBI has, has their approach has evolved a little bit and they're putting out individual photos of some of these uh, defendants, but it's still not quite as good as what amateur sleuths are sort of putting together um, on their own in this sort of disorganized manner. And, you know, the FBI is still sort of a little bit behind. They have a lot of of a lot of capabilities beyond what um, beyond what a lot of these sleuths do. But there's a lot of frustration, I think, in these sleuthing communities that are like, okay, if I had access to, you know, this this trove of, of, of cell phone data, and I, basically, you know, you, they have enough, they've compiled enough information where there's a case, all they need to do is get that confirmation that that cell phone was, you know, around the Capitol that day and boom, they're done. Um, the facial recognition has been the really creepy part of this to me where some of these amateur sleuths have been able to figure out who people are based on facial recognition software that they get on the internet. So they'll be able to track someone throughout the crowd based on facial recognition and then also just find out who that person really is. And that's been a really successful uh, way that they've gone about uh, doing these information then confirming that um, that identification through additional information and presenting it to the FBI. Well, well, talk to me about how law enforcement cooperates with with these folks. What the what the interface is, because you know clearly, you know some of these people um, have great you know, have, have valuable information for the FBI for law enforcement officials, but they are not themselves law enforcement, so therefore they can't have access to certain information that law enforcement might get with a warrant. So how does how does that actually work? I mean, is there is there any tension within the FBI about cooperating with moms from Akron on on this or or are they like hey this is fantastic it's wonderful let's you know let's deputize her yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's varied. I think that now there at this point there's some of the really hardcore sleuths have individual relationships with FBI people they could they can speak with directly, but the feedback loop is frankly a problem on this because what happened is right after January 6th, we saw all these tips, literally hundreds of thousands of tips flood into the FBI yeah. and the FBI is still playing catch up on a lot of those tips and there's not this feedback loop. So there was one sleuth I was talking to who was who was sort of jokingly suggesting that she would have liked the FBI to take more of an approach 
that Domino's does. Like, you know, you love the Domino's pizza tracker. It's like, okay, your order's in, it's in the oven. Here's what's happening with it. And, and instead with the FBI, it's like you dump off an email and you never hear from them again mm-hmm. until maybe one day the case pops. And it's sort of tough for them to get, you know, to know what's happening on the other side uh, of that screen, or if anyone is even individually assigned to their case, because there were plenty of cases that were overlooked in the early days. Um, and the FBI is only now catching up to. So, you know, there are obviously huh. very reasonable restrictions on what the FBI can say about ongoing cases and how they can keep people sort of informed there. So it is that tension um, that's sort of on ongoing here. But, you know, now I've heard that a lot of sleuths have been talking who have individual relationships with FBI agents have been talking to them and getting more context from the FBI about just what's going on behind the scenes, because truly it is an overwhelming investigation. And um, there's a lot of different components to this. Some of the some of the delays are technical. Some of the delays are, you know, maybe more to do with the field office and how how overwhelmed they are, their individual assignments in that area. Um, perhaps some resistance to bringing some low level charges sure. from some of the people. I mean, you know, we talk we I mean, it's 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 funny to talk about now, but the FBI is a generally I would say they're probably like Romney Republicans. They're generally conservative leaning organization, even though it's it's sort of been demonized as this liberal cabal now. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a lot of different components that are going into why some of these delays are happening. And now sleuths are sort of getting a little better handle of that, even if there's this continued frustration from them about what exactly is going on with these cases that they sort of feel like they handed to the FBI on a silver platter. So going forward, though, th- this this strikes me as, as a very interesting development, because if, in fact, we do have the problems of domestic terrorism and domestic extremism, um, one of the big questions has always been, whether or not the FBI has the manpower and the resources to be able to monitor all of this. And listening to you and reading your the, the stuff you've written about this, it, it, it occurs to me that what you're seeing develop is sort of organically a network that's going to be around, that will continue. Well, tell me if I'm right about this, that will continue to monitor these after we're done with, with January 6th, that in an ongoing basis, um, you know, this, this does expand the footprint of people with eyes on many of these extremist organizations and, uh, and activists. Yeah, I think that's true. A lot of people who got into this in the early days are going to continue to follow these local organizations and groups going forward, but that's not that's not a long-term game plan necessarily for the FBI here. And you know, historically obviously, if you just, you know, if you if you go back 100 years into the FBI's history and you look at some of the awful things that the FBI did mm-hmm. over the years against, you know, uh, people who they disagreed with politically who are not in favor with the state. Um, There's obviously a lot of protections and sort of walls in place now about uh, respecting First Amendment rights and and ending investigations when there's no reason for them to continue, right? There's sort of a a ticking time clock as soon as an investigation starts about, okay, do we still have um, the reason to continue with this investigation or do we need to shut it down? So, you know, domestic terrorism has been something that the Bureau has been struggling with for a very long time. And I think that the the Biden administration has now proposed adding a lot of money to figure out how exactly to um, keep track of a lot of these organizations, but it's going to come up with some really complicated questions because if you go back, you know, to the early Obama era, and we remember when there was that DHS report mm-hmm. that was sort of talking about the 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 threat of of right wing extremism and the political reaction that we saw to that at the time. So there are these very high sensitivities, and I think it will continue, especially as we continue to see the FBI churning out. These 
these cases against all of these Trump supporters, there's going to be this continued um, political grind. And I think that's the same thing with um, the January 6th uh, Select Committee, that it's going to it's going to be highly politicized and the FBI is going to be very very cautious and have to be careful about how they're, well, that's how they're right. approaching this. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm glad I'm glad you raised it because I mean obviously there's there's an upside into finding the the, the rioters of January 6th, but you, you th- there is a danger of having a large number of shall we say vigilante online private sleuths out there spying on, on one another. I mean that sure. that's 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 uh, something that we you know you, you clearly need to find a, a quick balance. Now in your uh, beat for the Huffington Post, you uh, you cover the Justice Department in in general. I'm interested in your take on Merrick Garland and the the approach that he's taking to uh, prosecuting or not prosecuting uh, former officials of the Trump administration, including most recently the decision not to charge anybody um, in the case of lying about the census, including Wilbur Ross. So give me your take about Merrick Garland and, and the approach that he's trying to take um, which is clearly very disappointing to many progressives. Who I see online are just hammering him today on this Wilbur Ross case. Yeah, you know, I think that he's, it's sort of what we expected. I think that this was the approach that he sort of took. He wasn't this sort of, you know, dyed-in-the-wool liberal who was going to come in and, and overhaul everything necessarily. He takes outside expertise, and he brought in, um, I think, two people into um, this, well, first of all, the head of the Civil Rights Division and the, the number three uh, position at the Justice Department, who are, are more, you know, progressive, and I think are there's certainly interesting debates, I'm sure, unfolding behind uh, closed doors about how the Justice Department approaches some of these issues on on criminal justice reform in particular and some of these issues around voting. Um, but, you know, to, to step back, I mean, Garland has come out and, and been pretty, made some really strong statements about the need to protect voting rights. He's made some pretty bold pronouncements about um, reforming police, and he's restarted some of these investigations into local uh, police departments that were shut down during the Trump administration. So it hasn't been, you know, disappointment across the board, I wouldn't right. say, for, for progressives here. But, you know, Obviously, after coming out of uh, the administration, uh, the Trump administration, there's a lot of desire for accountability. Um, and I think that he's taking a very measured approach and his, you know, I think his guiding star is probably the legitimacy of the Justice Department and sort of, you know, going back to those norms that we that were sort of in place, I think, post Watergate. Um, and I think that that's his overall guiding philosophy. And that isn't to say that he's not going to prosecute anyone at all. And just we're turning a new page, because just look at the approach that he's taken to Rudy Giuliani. That was a pretty extraordinary measure in terms of raiding the the home of uh, the, uh, the the former uh, attorney for the, the President of the United States. That was a pretty significant move. And I think that if the the evidence presents itself, and there's and there's clear there's a clear case going forward that um, that's something that will be pursued. But what what wouldn't be good for the country is if you know they got ahead of their skis and charged something that the evidence didn't fully support. Because we know what the immediate reaction is going to be. You can see what the immediate reaction is going to be from those people who who are charged, and it's going to be the immediate immediate charge of this is all political. So what? I think Merrick Garland wants to do is set up a system in which everything can't, isn't seen strictly through a, through a political lens. Um, so I would expect as we go on that this isn't something that when there are cases that are going to be able to be brought, that they'll be brought. Um, but I don't think that, you know, there's going to be as many prosecutions certainly as some people on the left would necessarily want. 
He seems very consciously, I don't know that he thinks in these terms at all, because as you point out, I mean, he, I mean, given, given his background, he's, he's not a, a rabid partisan. Um, but it does seem that in so many ways, his, uh, his justice department is sort of the anti non, uh, Bill Barr kind of justice department that, that he's very, very anxious to show the independence, the non-political nature of it, perhaps leaning o- over backwards too far to make that point. I, I don't yeah, I think that I I think that overall I would say that you know Justice Department employees are probably pretty pretty satisfied with the approach he's he's taken um, because they don't want to be sort of political pawns they don't want to just be actors that go every four years sort of swing back and forth and take completely contradictory positions in court. And that's, you know, that, that's that sort of grind between politics and the law right now, where we saw this during the Obama administration, where there were things that the administration defended, including, I believe, uh, DOMA at the time, which they abhorred politically, but continue to defend in a limited capacity in court. Um, and you can't really have, that's going to take away a lot of the credibility of the Justice Department before judges if they're just taking these wildly different um, political or rather legal positions in court as the political spectrum sort of swings. So I think that that's something that, you know, you need to keep it within the confine and not have these wild swings legally. You need to keep everything sort of within the confines and make consistent arguments, maybe drop arguments going forward if you don't, if they don't line up with um, the political goals of the administration. But they're, I think they are trying to draw that um, pretty hard line between, um, you know, the communications between the White House and the Justice Department. And sometimes that's causing, I think, some tension because we just came off an administration that didn't care about those lines and didn't care, like, didn't care about keeping those, the, that separation between DOJ and, and the White House. And that's a, that's a, it's a big switch to put in place um, all at once. And it's causing, I think, some, some tension within uh, the administration. It, it, it is tempting. And I, you know, I mean, I, I find myself torn between on the, on the one hand saying, okay, I want, it's important that everybody be held accountable. No one is above the law and there must be a reckoning for all this on the one hand versus recognizing that, okay, one of the worst things about the Trump administration and, and Bill Barr was the, uh, the threat of politicization, the, the whole lock her up cycle. And you get into the locker up cycle where we, as, as you point out, you know, one administration begins going after the previous administration. And then every four years you have this sort of, you know, back and back and forth, lock him up, lock her up. Um, it gets very ugly. Um, and, and the downward spiral can be very, very, very rapid. So I, I, I do get, there's real tension between those. I mean, there, there, there really is. And, and, I, and I, I can actually see both sides of it because, I mean, I share the frustration of people, you know, who look at this and go, how do powerful people break the law? How do they lie and then suffer no consequences? I mean, there's something deeply wrong, something deeply subversive of the Constitution if anyone is above the law. But on the other hand, do we want this constant back and forth of trials? And I don't, I don't know. I mean, we, I think we, we have a sense of where Merrick Garland comes down on that question. Yeah, I mean, I, you look at that even just with Trump and and January six, right? And who is most accountable for what happened on January six? Um, and those are the toughest cases to make. The people who are up on the, the that podium and saying "fight for Trump" and you know th- this is the end of America, who riled up that crowd um, to do what they ultimately did. I think you know hold a tremendous amount of moral culpability uh, for what happened. The problem is is that that's really difficult to do under our system in terms of legal culpability because there's not. There's First Amendment concerns that are are really prominent in those cases. And, you know, political speech is very highly protected. So when someone says fight, 
fight is something that's used mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. um, in political rhetoric. We can't be poli- we can't be charging people criminally when they say you got to fight, right? Um, it's just le- it's just really complicated issues, and those those the people who were the most responsible have the most legal protections, really, um, rather than sort of the pawns, I suppose, who acted through on that and you know absorbed that logic and said, oh, this is the end of America. This is 1776 2.0. I've got to do something about it, and just you know and acted on and sort of followed through and acted on um, what they were hearing, which is that the election was stolen. And if you hear that the election was stolen, this is the end of America. There's going to be this communist takeover uh, of the country that, you know, you're going to act on that. You're not just going to have your little peaceful protest and and sit back. And that's, I think what, um, yeah, what the problem is going forward is finding accountability and and, and holding those people accountable. Yeah. Well, interesting. You mentioned it because that, that is coming up in, in a lot of the trials The people go, okay, I was misled. I believed all of that. And I think this is a point that needs to be made over and over again. That if you in fact believe that the election has been stolen, if you believe there is this evil takeover of your country, then the response becomes at least understandable, if not defensible. Yeah. If, if not defensible, and that is the argument. I'm basically saying, you know, I, I I listened to this. I I got my information from the president. I got the information from Fox News, and I acted on it in a way that seemed to be reasonable and rational to them. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I know, or I at least think of knowing that there's this constant thing with politicians where you're like, do they actually believe this, or are they just like appeasing right. a crowd, or are they actually this like not smart, um, <laughs> unintelligent? And I think that like in a lot of cases, it's clear that they don't believe this because if they actually believed it every day, they should be like sitting in on the well of the Senate, right? If you actually thought that there is this illegitimate president in place, you would you would resist that at every moment possible. Yes. Like even if you did it completely peacefully, every single moment should just be, this is an illegitimate president. None of this is legitimate. You should be protesting every second you're on the floor. And that's not what they're doing because a lot of these politicians know that's not what happened, right? None of the, I, I would not say that the most people who voted against the election actually thought that, you know, the Dominion machines were stealing millions of votes and just, or some of our, these, these crazy conspiracy theories that are out there, but they have to appease that crowd that actually does believe these things. And so that's where this sort of grind, I think, uh, sort of takes place. And they, they give themselves a way a little bit by not being constantly resisting everything that the administration does. Well, and and, and that's one of the uh, you know signal you know um, moments that we're, we're we're going through here. Even people who are close to, for example, you know former President Trump, according to uh, this new book, um, can't figure out whether or not he believes this stuff. I mean, look, I mean, it's, there's nothing new about politicians saying something they don't necessarily believe because they're throwing red meat to their base. I mean, that's been going on for a long time, but it does seem to be. You know, very much part of this particular moment that nobody knows whether anyone really believes this stuff that's having this these cataclysmic consequences, right? I mean, we, we, the thing about the big lie is it is so big and it is so consequential. And so it is relevant. Are the people who are spreading it, do they actually believe this or are they just saying it? Now, many of the people who act on it, and this is important, I think, to understand, the people who act on it do genuinely believe it. I mean, they believe it down to the the cellular level, whether or not they really have any idea, like the guy that you wrote about who uh, thought that they were attacking the White House, not the Capitol. I mean, it's like... Now, I, what, 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 do you, what do you say about that person? I'm not defending that person. I'm just trying to explain, you know, the, the way the shit flows downhill sometimes. 
Yeah. And I think the difficult thing is pulling people out of that belief because, you know, if you were fooled by this, it's pretty embarrassing that you got fooled by this. And it's going to be pretty hard to admit that you were wrong and you got suckered. Right. Um, and I think that that's really what the issue is here because it's very hard for people who, who know a lot about how elections work or know anything about, you know, the, the system to pull someone out of this based on all of the stuff they've been reading on Facebook for, you know, for months and months and years. Um, and say that, you know, no, this is, doesn't make any sense. It's hard to do that in a way that doesn't make that person who was suckered by this information feel that you're you're not talking down to them. I think that yeah. that's a very difficult thing to do, um, and that's where uh, we've seen now that people have been charged who have been who have come clean on this. But I think that for people who didn't storm the Capitol, that's a more difficult thing to admit. That yeah, I I believe this. Um, I shouldn't have believed it. You know. I'm, I'm going to sort of take my lumps over it and learn a lesson from it going forward and not be as trusting as unreli- in unreliable sources as I should, uh, as I shouldn't be, because, you know, I observed a lot of information that wasn't true. So I think that that's really what the, the issue is here for, you know, a large portion of the Republican party is, is pulling people back from that illusion and, you know, just we need a shared reality here. And I think both on the what happened in the 2020 election and what happened on January 6th, I think that's something we're going to struggle to get because there are these completely opposing pictures of what happened on on in election day and where some people think that Donald Trump is legitimately elected president of the United States and is going to be reinstalled next month. Um, and what happened on January 6th, where some people seem to think that was a peaceful protest and everything was fine, when in reality, it was this brutal slugfest um, that happened over hours of time and took over the Capitol. Well, that's why these court cases are so interesting because you're right, of course, that we do live in a, in a political world where we have dueling all realities, alternative realities. Um, but in the justice system, um, they're, they're still, it's still fact-based. And you have many of these things that, uh, you know, come up against the big lie or these, these cases, uh, they come up against a court of, of law where uh, the truth actually matters. And, yeah. uh, and and so, so far, the judicial system has been kind of the one institution that, that I think has performed, I tell me whether you disagree, I think it, it performed extraordinarily well as the as a bulwark for our for our system. We may have, uh, you, know, you know, Congress uh, going down the rabbit holes or other politicians or media outlets going down the rabbit holes. But when these things hit a court of law, even guys like Rudy Giuliani have to admit, yeah, I don't have any evidence of fraud. I, I could I can, you know, tweet about fraud. I can go on Facebook and talk about fraud. I can go on, you know, OAN or Newsmax or Fox News and talk about fraud. But when I'm standing in a courtroom in front of a federal judge, uh, facts still matter. There is one reality, and I have to swear an oath to it. And that's, that's you know, that's that's good news, I think. Yeah. I mean, you saw it even in that, in that case yesterday where the judge sentenced someone to a significant eight-month sentence, but it was much less than what the 18 months that prosecutors desired there. And it's very difficult to look at that case and look what happened and look what unfolded and say, okay, this was political. This was an individualized decision based on his conduct that day and based on the law. They looked at the evidence. They looked at the law. They looked at the the credit he deserved for cooperating. They looked at the plea deal. Um, they looked at his criminal history and decided a an individualized sentence for him based on what happened, his background, um, the deterrent effect needed to go forward. This was So it's very difficult to for someone 
to come in afterwards and say, oh man, they really like threw the book at him. This is political. Look at the system going against this person when there's that individualized look at things. So yeah, I think the, you know, the judicial branch is a, an extraordinarily important component um, to this. But, you know, sadly overall, I think that even that branch has, has gone down in terms of uh, public uh, believability, in terms mm-hmm. of People, I mean, people very much think that it's still this this political beast, um, and I think that it certainly has is by no means <laughs> outside of politics. It is influenced by politics for sure, but there is that uh, attachment to reality, and there's there's not that ability to just throw out crazy things that doesn't fly in court. So that is something we have at least a fact grounded. I think you're very right, a fact grounded branch of government that's going to be very uh, important going forward. Where there's not going to be that political fight like you're going to see on uh, the January 6th Commission because no. we're not ta- we're not no no one's no one says says what about you know Minneapolis or if you did the judge is like that's not relevant let's keep it in let's keep let's right. let's bring it back here let's happen let's talk about what's happening you know in this case rather than you know doing what about isms and you know that's what uh, jim jordan's going to be doing on that committee a lot of what about uh, ryan riley thank you so much for uh, joining us on the bulwark podcast today and talking about this uh, ryan riley is a senior justice reporter for the huffington post you could read his work uh, there and you're working on a book right on the on the fbi uh and the way uh well i'm mean, tell me about what your book is i mean, i won't try to characterize it yeah, it's it's about this real pivot point that I think we are seeing after January 6th. So it's a, both about this extraordinary manhunt and about what the FBI does from here and where they go from here. Um, you know, I don't I don't obviously 9/11 was a much more brutal, much more vi- I don't want to make that I'm not trying to make that comparison directly, but I do think in terms of a pivot point that we are going to see somewhat something somewhat similar after January 6th and you know, there's obviously this big change at the FBI after September 11th. And I think we're going to see sort of the same uh, trajectory, maybe on a smaller scale um, at the FBI going forward after January 6th. Looking forward to it. We'll talk to you uh, when the book uh, comes out, Ryan. Uh, And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.